options will become kind of the weapon of choice for a lot of the industry. And, and we saw that very clearly last year, where we had absolutely enormous positions in the options market, uh, especially in crude, but a lack of people trading futures. And obviously, you need the futures market to move to put those options positions in the money. And we just had a disconnect. So everyone was sitting, waiting on their options, but no one was buying the futures to actually make that happen for them. I think we're going to get a few more contradictions like that and staying on top of where these flows and positions are sitting, whether it's in futures or options, um, will be really key kind of going forward to understand where those constraints are. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important given where we are in the global economy and geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like and we want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. So please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Harry Krishnan. Thanks very much for the introduction, Niels. My guest today is Nikki Ferguson, founder of the research firm It's Not a Science in Basel, Switzerland. Um, it's a pleasure to have you on, sir. Pleasure to be here, Harry. Thanks very much. Now, uh, I don't usually go too far into people's backgrounds unless they wish to, but I noticed that you worked at some major energy companies over the years. Uh, maybe you can go into that a little bit and tell us how you came out on the other side running a research firm. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, after my kind of uh, PhD, um, kind of looking for a job and I got kind of uh, headhunted, if you like, and uh, ended up at Coke Industries in London. And it was a really interesting place, you know, a lot of different uh, asset classes traded on the, you know, on the floor. Um, so you got exposure to a lot of things. And uh, I started off on the systematic desk, uh, working with a great um, portfolio manager. And we looked at everything in energy. And it was how to put together kind of more of a systematic portfolio, but using not just price-based uh, resources, but also fundamentals, and really trying to determine how do traders look at markets, what is more important for each individual market, and can we take a data-driven approach to determine the optimal way that that should be looked at systematically? You know, is that relationship persistent enough to trade off systematic signals? And 
we kind of built a portfolio across everything nearly in in energy um and that was very successful for a couple of years um and then i got poached within coke to move to uh, geneva to the prop team there and uh you know i would describe that approach as maybe quant aware discretionary trading using a lot of very model driven to determine lots of signals and classifications and how we think about markets and really thinking about the mechanism and trying to determine all the little individual kind of bits in markets um you know in terms of participant actions in terms of flows how can we use more quantitative tools to classify them so that we're aware of them and we can embed them into our more discretionary decision making process and maybe we determine that the weights and how to weight that information a bit using experience and um, into more discretionary uh, trading decisions. Okay. Uh, when you were running the systematic piece or when you were involved in that, what f- sorts of fundamental inputs did you find valuable? I think it varies across assets and across time. And I, I think that's still very true today. You know, uh, markets kind of like natural gas tend to be a lot more fundamentally driven um than financially driven um but when you're talking about oil you know oil is a risk asset so you need to approach it slightly differently and i think you know um the consternation of many traders out there you know oil futures market does not always reflect the oil fundamentals um so your approach has to really vary in natural gas you know it's a very data driven very quick to price fundamental market um, and understanding the small changes of that interaction in the system matter a lot more than than oil, where a lot of the fundamental data is is slow moving and also lagged when it comes to market. Um, although that is changing today, yeah. So it really varies, I think. Well, let me not hijack your your biography, so maybe you can continue on there. Sure. Then you know, I moved to um, BKW, which is a great firm. Um, that probably flies under the radar a little bit, um, based out of Bern in, in Switzerland. And they have a kind of great team there. And I spent basically that period, you know, trading through the pandemic, you know, trading flat price oil, and you know, and especially during that period, market flows were so much more prominent. You know, participant constraints around those flows. You know, and I just sat during that period thinking of all the things I wanted to kind of build when I finally had time to do some some research, if you like. And uh, a lot of the ideas I got for my company were, you know, during that time. What years were you at BKW? Uh, 2000 and I want to say 18 to 21. And so you went through March 2020, obviously, at BKW. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. That was a, a very interesting time. And I think that, you know, the, the stresses of managing a flat price dominant portfolio um, during those years, it was interesting. You really had to be on your toes. And I think, especially during those times, the the market drivers were changing so quickly from week to week. And we had huge moves um, between the different relevant participants in markets because of the volatility conditions were also uh, structurally driving changes across markets. And then obviously with large changes in fundamentals, the commercial side of the business was also changing a lot. So it was, you know, you almost got a decade of trading in in two years with all these structural changes. So I think I think a lot of people age quite quickly over those over those years, especially on a commodity desk. Yeah. 
Very good. And then uh, Starcraft, is that the last, the next one? Yeah, that was a, is a really great place to be. Um, and uh, I think when I joined Statcraft, I just uh, I left a great team at BKW, and I almost realised that's the time to start my own company. So it was a bit a bit unfair on Statcraft to have such a short stint there. But it was the the pull to you know actually get back into research and try and deliver a lot of these kind of things I'd learned and thought about um, over the years uh, to more clients uh, was just too strong to resist in the end. It's not that common for people to start off as a PM or in trading and then to move on to research, or is it? Am I mistaken here? Or? Um, I wouldn't say it's uncommon. Um, I think I did get a few questions you know, when I started the firm of, why are you not doing this inside a trade shop? And I think, you know, when you, and I, you know, I, I have thought about that as well, but you don't have that complete freedom to do original research always you know you're at the mercy of uh, your paymasters in the end about what's relevant at any given time and while i do try to make my my research very relevant to what is actually pricing and you know important for traders um having kind of complete freedom um over what you work on what's interesting how you do it and also you're not constrained by a use case because as a researcher generally in a trading firm or a hedge fund you're working for a pm who has their own idea and needs, and they don't always align with what you want to do. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Well, with that, um, there are a few major categories I want to go into, and I've read a few of the research papers that you've written, and uh, I highly recommend them if members of the audience can contact you or access them. Um, the, uh, the first thing I wanted to talk about was positioning risk, which I think is an important theme in your work. That's something that I've been interested in in other markets. And I guess the first question is, who are the major players in the energy markets and how do they impact market? How do they impact prices? I mean, so the major players are, you know, split between, let's say, commercial entities. So the producers, trading houses, um, or refineries, anyone that's transforming the kind of raw commodity. And then you have the non-commercial elements, which are um, kind of you could classify split between systematic and more discretionary participants. So CTAs are a major component, risk parity funds are a large component, and your general kind of hedge funds that uh, are active, um, some commodity specific, some macro, but commodities are traded in a lot of places now. On the commercial side, I get a bit confused though, because don't these entities trade as well? Don't they have trading desks? Absolutely. Yeah. Where there's prop proper activity going on absolutely yeah and i think a lot of that prop activity is also leveraged around their physical commercial activity as well and i think if you look at you know say the new uh, mifid reports that have come out in the last few years you can see that there generally is a fairly big correlation between the let's say the non-hedge book and the hedge book you could call it a speculative book but it's not always the same thing i mean a lot of the times they do go in the same direction. And I, and I think that's probably right. I mean, if you have a strong physical view and you see your physical traders taking large positions as a derivatives trader around those positions, you, you have a much clearer insight into how the, you know, the real fundamental markets are actually operating, which, you know, it's a, it's a very good edge. Well, that's, a, that's a fascinating comment. It is a big edge, but uh, I'm thinking now as just a finance guy. Wouldn't that be highly undiversifying? 
to be doing the same stuff on your prop book as you are in the course of your commercial hedging activities? That's an interesting question, right, from the finance perspective, because in general, you know, finance and, and trade, everyone's talking about diversification and getting rid of risks. Um, but when you think about how people trade commodities, most people are, almost traders, are asset-specific specialists. So essentially, you know, commodity traders are trading something with the volatility of a single stock and zero diversification or very little. Got it. But they might dampen the risk by trading spreads, calendar spreads, or um, this, that, you know, and the Locational other well. arbitrages and, uh, you know, cracks and things like that. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the corrective side of trading. And then you have the more directional side of trading. Got it. So then jumping again, if we look at some of the stuff that you have looked at, I'm sure far more than I have, such as commitment of traders reports and so on, you don't need to be too worried about what the commercial users are doing in various parts of their business because they tend to overlap. Is that kind of what you're suggesting? That makes the analysis a bit easier? Uh, I wouldn't say completely, um, but I would say, you know, when you look at the outright positioning, the commercials are clearly the largest uh, positions across all markets. But when you look actually at the standard deviation of the position changes, speculative positions tend to be just as large. So when you're thinking about actually what matters for pricing or price impact of positional changes and flows, you know, the speculative side of the business is almost just as important as the commercial side of the business. I mean, this is not the same in every asset, um, but for things like crude and the energy space, the speculative side of the business is just as important. And the commercial side of the business, the positions are predominantly moving with fundamentals and inventory management, things that you can see live and compared to the size of their positions, it's a slow moving um, process. I mean, it hasn't been during the COVID years when we've seen, seen big swings in uh, supply and demand and inventories where these positions had to change a lot, but many of them are linked to inventory management. So once you've kind of understood that from the inventory side, a lot of the focus can actually be more on the speculative side. Got it. So in the absence of fundamental shocks, if you're in a regime where there are no fundamental shocks, let's say, I know that's backward looking, then you can focus a lot more on flows or repositioning of specs. Yeah, I think, think about it this way. Um, commodity fundamentals are generally fairly slow moving. Financial markets are very fast moving. So, you know, you can use, you know, long-term commodity fundamental views as, let's say, a forward anchor point. But the price path that you take to get there is more determined by financial flows than it is by anything else. And I think that that's what leads to a lot of difficulty for traders in markets, because most most traders, not all, but most tend to be very fundamentally focused. And that takes a lot of time and energy to get a correct fundamental view. And they kind of tend to miss the more financial um, driven elements of commodity markets, and which at times can be very big um, and significantly bigger than the, the fundamental or the physical side of the business. Can you, can you do fairly well with no knowledge of the fundamentals? Is, is, do you have a perception on that, a view on that? I think you can. Um, I mean, I've never done a fundamental balance in my career. You know, I was involved in commodity trading for seven or eight years, and not once have I ever done a fundamental balance. 
I am aware, though, of when fundamentals are pricing and when they're not, and a general sense of where the fundamentals should be. So it's not as if you sit, you know, with a bag over your head, you know, or in a box trading without any knowledge of, you know, what's actually pricing in markets. And often you can see by the pricing actually what fundamentals are doing. So without, you know, seeing, you know, what stocks there are in China or um, what the flows are between, you know, two different um, locational kind of benchmarks, you can infer a lot of it from physical market pricing. You know, if you have, let's say in, in oil, if you have a strengthening of structure in the Dubai kind of benchmark, you can infer that, you know, fundamentals are getting tighter in that market. Now, it's not perfect, obviously, and, you know, the pricing tends to lag, but there are things that you can infer fundamentally from certain structures when you look at pricing in markets. So the more granular regional uh, flat price movements, if you assume those are more fundamentally driven, which they probably are, and if you also assume, which I'm sure is true, that the futures markets operate with a lag, the standardized contracts operate with a lag, then the degree to which they're moving together is some kind of, or the basis, some kind of basis is a measure of the degree to which fundamentals are driving driving the market? I guess you could infer it like that, yeah. I see. So if the futures are in the short term detached from the physical prices, you can say that this that's a flow-driven market. Whereas if they're moving in tandem... I think... Another way you could look at it is um, if you think about if you're, let's say, a more fundamentally driven trader, you're probably utilizing more time spreads, let's say, or uh, locational ARBs or transformational spreads, such as, you know, cracks, trade margins and such. Um, So the majority of your trading should be driven by those, let's say, commodity transformation spreads. So whether you're using time, location or product. And when financials tend to be more important, it should be a more flat price driven market. And what you can actually do is, you know, when you look at the relative volumes traded between these two instruments, uh, you can kind of infer that way. And that is actually very clear. You know, when, when CTAs are dominating markets, you have a lot more flat price only driven trading. And when fundamentals tend to become more important, or let's say changes in fundamentals are becoming more important to the market, you'll find that spread-driven trading picks up. And you can isolate these volumes quite easily. I think Charlie McGallagher, I may have butchered his name, uh, Nomura, uh, talks about CTA positioning a lot and so on. I'm sure you know him. Uh, He may well have a CTA model on his desk. Is that the sort of thing you look at too, where you'll think, if I were t- play, uh, building a bog standard trend following system, let's say, and it traded all the major energy markets, I can tell when these players are fully loaded on the long or short side, and maybe that heralds a potential um, reversal or um, something like that. Is that the sort of thing you look at? Yeah, absolutely. And it's also very regime dependent. Um, but yeah, we, we do build essentially a full CTA um, like operationally, internally, um, to back out the, the weights or portfolio weights and hence positioning in each of the assets. And it's very dynamic because um, when you're doing kind of a, your standard vol parity kind of optimization with leverage, you know, you'll get out these varying weights. And the, the kind of when you're looking really precisely at the flow and, and kind of what we do is try to predict forward flow in lots for each asset, which is a, it's another challenge altogether. And, and then you have to think about, 
okay, the liquidity of each asset changes. Um, understanding the participation ratios of each asset. You cannot use, let's say, the same leverage um, in heating oil contracts as you do in Brent crude. You know, so you have to understand how that affects, how big that position can be. And sometimes then how long it takes CTAs to flip positions because Brent is a lot more liquid than, let's say, copper. So it's going to take you a lot longer to flip the, a position of similar size. You know, you're not just going to go and do it all in one go. It gets sliced through several days. So the pricing impact becomes persistent because the flows are spread out depending on liquidity and participation ratios. So getting down into like the nitty gritty, you can kind of then forecast how much flow you expect to see each day. And there are ways to slowly kind of validate that. It's, you can't get perfect estimators. I mean, you get some funds trading Asian hours, some trade predominantly on the US Open or US Equity Open when all futures contracts are going live. So you see the impacts kind of all at once across markets. You get some that will trade, um, you notice spikes in volume, uh, you know, every 15 minutes on the 15 minutes and spikes at the close as well, where these, all the different, you know, um, CTAs are programmed to trade. So it's it, it's never like perfect where you actually clearly see it, but you can use classifiers to understand and verify, let's say, that these models are actually pushing excess volume in the direction you expect at certain price levels. Perfect. Is it fair to say that risk parity operates more slowly or to lag to trend following? Absolutely. I think risk parity is one of those, um, it's kind of like your silent whale in, in the markets where most of the time you don't notice that they're there because they're using a lot longer volatility kind of optimization. You know, so CTAs are a lot more short-term volatility and you, you have to, you know, if you think about how strategies have changed over the last, let's say, 10, 15 years um, in CTA kind of strategies, you know, going back pre-financial crisis, probably some of the optimal lookbacks for CTA strategies was maybe going out to 12 months. And these days, it's a really a lot, a lot shorter. Um, if you think the optimal probably look back, even just on a sharp ratio basis in Brent crude over the last decade is around one month. So it's it's really changed a lot. So, you know, CTAs are really short-term vol optimizers to get into those positions because the moves are happening quicker. And risk parity, you know, you're talking somewhere between a 200-day and a one-year kind of look back on trading day basis um, for volatility. So you can almost predict when, if you knew what the look-back window was for the volatility measurement for a risk parity fund or for the aggregation of the funds, you might be able to say when they would be forced to rebalance and use that as a guide Absolutely. to and, uh, uh, marginal, marginal flows. And if you take the situation that we have today, um, you know, last year um, we had the impact of the Ukraine war coming through the market. We also had a big distillate shortage last summer, which also pushed a lot of volatility through the crude market in July. And then also the bond kind of market crisis, particularly with gilts um, coming in towards the end of the year. And so all that kind of volatility is then just slowly rolling out of these risk parity portfolios. We've already lost um, probably most of the February and March impact of the Ukraine war from last year. And risk parity is certainly starting to relever, particularly into crude. And, you know, in another six to eight weeks, a lot of that volatility that we saw last July is also going to start to roll out of that calculation. So the Brent weight or the weight in, let's say, more energy products in these portfolios will start to go up. And also, when you look at risk parity, the 
portfolio correlations have started to come down quite significantly um, in the last two months. Um, and that means that the in- follow-through impact on portfolio volatility as a whole is starting to come down. So if you think, you know, as a benchmark that um, risk parity is kind of levered to a portfolio volatility target of 10%, um, for most of the last like decade, we've been bumbling along somewhere around 4 or 5%. You know, you're deploying, let's say, 100% of leverage on top. And now you've essentially, last year, delevered all of these funds. And now you're starting to relever. So you're going to have this double impact of um, energy markets optimally gaining from volatility rolling out of that portfolio in the next two months. And portfolios generally relevering as correlations come down and volatility comes down. Jumping around slightly, um, Nat Gas has been the poster child of high vol. I don't know, peaked over nine nine dollars in mid twenty twenty two. It's down to about two thirty, two forty now. At least Henry Hub. It was that to what extent was that flow driven? And to what extent could one formulate a bullish view based on the notion that vol cannot sustain itself at these levels indefinitely? Yeah, I mean, in that gas, vol is coming down. I think a lot of the move that we have seen, you know, let's say the beginning of the move to come down, was fundamentally driven. You know, net gas is a fundamentally driven market. And whether you're taking the signals from European gas now, as markets become a lot more globally integrated, and that was the reason we had a spike in gas prices was coming out of Europe. But let's say I think the move this year in, in US natural gas has been a lot more flow driven. We haven't seen major position changes from any other um, major participants other than, um, let's say, speculative money. And we've seen a drop basically from uh, from $4 to, let's say, nearly $2 we reached uh, earlier this week. That's predominantly, let's say, CTA driven. I mean, these positions are getting bigger. It's mechanical selling into the market. We have seen more discretionary traders. They're still short, so they are profiting from this. But on the other side of this trade, we've seen ETFs buying the biggest ever natural gas uh, position in outright lots, I think, over at least over the last decade, if not longer. And I think if you go on Twitter these days, you you see, you know, people are getting quite excited about trying to buy the dip in, in natural gas and, you know, using the big uh, US listed kind of ETFs to do so. I mean, and over 100,000 lots, it's a significantly large position for that particular market. And given where natural gas or US natural gas particular liquidity is, you know, we're at multi, multi-year low, you know, in terms of trading liquidity in that market. So any kind of mechanical selling is just having an outside influence now. You said something that's I think is probably quite deep in there, and I'd, I'd just like to unravel it a bit. Uh, are you assuming that if a certain order goes through the market, that the number of lots traded is an important factor in price impact as well as the notional amount traded? And if so, why do you believe that? So in other words, if gas, if you, if I'm trading a hundred bucks of something and the price has gone down by 50%, so I'm trading twice as many contracts, are you claiming that the price impact of that will be bigger than if the price were higher and I only traded a standard number of contracts? That's, 
it's interesting to put it like that because I think most commodities traders don't think in terms of notionals. So we're really thinking about you know the volume that you're kind of trading and the liquidity that's in the market. Um, you know, you, and you might think about in terms of risk, but certainly I don't know that many people that think in pure notional terms. And it's more liquidity dependent. I mean, if there's someone on the other side of your trade, you know, you can have huge amounts of volume go through with very little price impact. But if, you know, general market participants are still constrained um, and there's no risk absorber, you're going to have a much larger price impact. And I think that's one of the most important things about studying um, flows, or financial flows in commodity markets. The, the impact um, is very situation dependent and usually dependent on whether there is a risk absorber for that flow. And the biggest moves that you usually see in commodity markets are when the normal kind of risk absorber tends to become very risk constrained and either has to stop out or can't or is VAR constrained, you know, and they can't add any more positions. And I think those are the kind of, you know, the times and situations that are usually extremely difficult for more fundamentally led traders because they're having to usually stop out of positions without fundamentals actually changing. Yeah, I mean, we've, we found the same thing in other markets, that lot size actually is significant. It isn't just the notional amount traded. But I was wondering whether that's simply because for risky assets like stocks or stock indices, when they go down, fall tends to go up, which is a, maybe indicates less liquidity in the market. Yeah, whereas for commodities, I'm not sure what the relationship is. I, I'm guessing there's a put skew for nat gas, but maybe oil has a persistent coal skew because surprises tend to be to the upside. I'm just curious on your view. Yeah, I mean, it varies by market. I think you're right with natural gas. I mean, we've had extremely heavy fundamentals for a decade and not a lot of discipline from producers. But in, in oil, you have probably a lot more upside risk that's quicker with geopolitical risk kind of being built into the market. Um, but it varies also because producers use a lot of options in crude. So um, how that bounces around depends on the amount of demand for producers on the hedging basis. Understood. Yeah, I, I understand that, that these markets have fatter right tails, especially crude. But once the right once there is a spike, does the risk become more symmetric? So in other words, if crude spikes from sixty to a hundred, that's a huge upside spike. And so let's say vol was pretty low coming in. Once the spike occurs and vol picks up, does the risk become more symmetric to the upside and downside? Is that something that you consider? in your um or considered in your trading or you consider now in the way you think about risk uh not necessarily i i kind of think about it in terms of path of least resistance rather than symmetric risks um because i think it's you know usually you after such events you do tend to get negative skewness in these returns because Ultimately, in commodity markets, you have corrective mechanisms kicking in at some point. Now, you know, you, you can say in a wide range of kind of prices, demand could be relatively inelastic, but there is always a constraint eventually. Now, whether that's in gas, people running out of money to pay for it, you know, US gasoline um, demand gets a bit twitchy above $5. There are constraints there. It's just where you find them. So the corrective mechanisms eventually do kick in, but they could take a bit longer. I mean, if you don't get a production response, I mean, supply responses tend to 
take longer than demand responses. Um, so understanding where your constraint is, whether it's like where your corrective is, whether it's on supply or demand and at what price levels, that's also kind of important to understand where that uh, skew in terms of probability um, lies. Which brings us to a uh, research paper that you sent me, kindly sent me, where you tried to relate fundamentals to price action and you used OILX, which is kind of an oil now cost, as I understand it. I've seen now costs for GDP and inflation. I haven't really seen one for uh, oil. I believe OILX was bought by some res larger research firm recently. I, can, I can't remember the name. but um, uh, Energy Aspects. Energy Aspects, that's the one. And um, maybe you can tell me how you use the index and what you found in terms of the interaction between fundamentals, flat prices, term structure, and so on. Uh, sure. Yeah, it was a, a really interesting uh, project and collaboration with OILX. I mean, they have you know really interesting data series and using really innovative kind of ways to put those together in a more high frequency basis than we're, let's say, traditionally used to in, in oil markets. So they use, combine this kind of satellite data and measurement of uh, oil, all the oil that is moving around the world, you know, with the machine learning models that they have to match it to historical, um, you know, let's say recorded fundamental levels um, to then come up with kind of a daily uh, measurement, if you like, of how that supply and demand balance is moving. I mean, they also record oil stocks daily, um, and how those how that balance gets revised over the following months. How do they know how much oil is in storage? Do they use a radar or something? Yeah, so they measure essentially the I guess the shadows on the tanks because in in oil markets you have uh, floating uh, roofs depending on how much crude is in there. So the satellite can measure the you know, how full each storage tank is. And there's no privacy constraints in doing this? You know, there are corporations moving oil around, it's all perfectly fine? I would imagine so. I mean, they're in the open. I mean, I guess unless you're not going over military space, I think it's perfectly fine. Okay, so that gives a good indication of supply, uh, perhaps. How about demand? That seems harder to measure. It is harder to measure, and I think you know m across most commodity markets, um, traditional kind of analysts are all focused on the supply side. Demand is much harder, um, but you can make kind of inferences based on how that data fits up with more higher frequency measures of demand. So, I mean, you know the number of flights that take off every day. Um, mobility data is getting a lot better these days. So, whether it comes from TomTom or Google, um, depending on the market. Um, you can track kind of movement uh, a lot more. But then you're still going to have those changes that you missed um, in the parts of the market that you can't see from demand. But if you also know, you know how much refineries are running every day, you can kind of get that real-time uh, measures or you know, the pipeline flows into refineries. You know, in some markets, you can get that data. So you can get some good measurements of demand. And then you know, you're trying to understand the sensitivity of your, let's say, a demand indicator fitted against, you know, realized demand data. And then you can build the model out of that. So basically you're saying you, if you know what the, you only need to know the changes in demand, you don't need to know demand itself. And if you have some good measures and you assume everything else is noise, 
then at least you've got some estimate of the change in demand over time. Is that kind of the... That's the kind of direction, yeah. I mean, I, I've not put this data together myself. I, I relied on, on ONX. Oh, no, so that I'm, I'm not the expert in collecting this type of data. And so what did you, what, what did you find in this? Uh, I know you have a, an interesting section on oil on water, but maybe you can summarize what you found using OilX. I looked at a bunch of the different data sets and um, I'll just comment on the stocks first because that was a really difficult one because we've essentially gone through a period in markets where inventories in oil have not necessarily been pricing because you've had a, essentially a global government intervention in, in storage with the release from the SPR. So it makes it very difficult to then ascertain how commercial entities are really reacting to this. So in a, let's say, more manipulated uh, variable there. So I predominantly focused on looking at the daily uh, changes in the supply and demand balance according to their kind of nowcast. And my first kind of main question to ask is, do we see participant flows on the back of this? So before I even look at, you know, whether it has a price impact, I want to know if there is some trading or activity around that. And, you know, predominantly for the, the supply and demand balance changes, we were seeing more, let's say, physical market trading, which you would expect, than, let's say, more speculative trading. The speculative trading from more, let's say, managed money kind of type of entities was more focused on the revisions to the balance that came later. And this is as more new data is released. So there is a lag, you know, when bigger agencies start to report, there's more prominence around some of these releases. And as that balance kind of gets updated, you know, that's when you start to see it move further down the curve and more discretionary traders that potentially have poorer information uh, historically than the physical commercial entities. They would trade a bit later. so. Within these type of mechanisms, it creates a persistence because you have different actors making the decisions at different stages through that cycle, if you like. And uh, and it, it just shows how difficult I think oil market fundamentals are and the importance of lags and getting good information. And you know we are moving to a, a world where getting real-time data and information is is a lot easier and becoming much more important. And then second, when you think about the price impact, it also follows a similar type of structure. So the price impact of, let's say, the S&D changes is more quickly observed, let's say, in the more physical aspects of the crude market, you know, such as uh, dated Brent, rather than in the futures contracts immediately. You know, the prompt elements of the futures curve in crude are very noisy. You have a lot of uh, roles going on. You have a lot of positional changes as well as uh, more discretionary and commercial trading around their uh, physical books, uh, more financial books as well. So it takes a little bit of time for that information to move, let's say, down the futures curve. And then because discretionary, or let's say more speculative discretionary traders are trading again with a lag, you get that persistent effect coming actually through later. Uh, but for for an entity such as a CTA or a discretionary macro that trades the futures curve, trades the forward curve, don't they also have to worry about things like seasonality? Whereas in the spot markets, it's just instantaneous demand for the for the commodity. Um, so doesn't that create an added wrinkle? Yeah, but it varies strongly by commodity, I think. Okay. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about was this oil on water 
uh, input that seem to be quite related to whatever's been going on in in Ukraine. And um, there was, as far as I could see from your paper, there was a strong uptrend in oil on water supply and a strong downtrend in land supply. Can you explain what your interpretation of that is? Sure. I think it's more the, let's say, the redirection of flows has been very inefficient for the market. You know, as more restrictions on the movement of Russian barrels came into place, ships have had to take longer journeys and use more ships uh, to move that oil. So um, it's just led to kind of a structural increase in the amount of oil that we now see on tankers moving around the world. You know, as uh, ships are having to take longer journeys um, to and also then, you know, transform the crude in different places to move it back to unsanctioned places, um, it gets a lot more complicated. So that's that should put upward pressure on prices. Is that the the kind of rough conclusion? Uh, I wouldn't say that. I think it's put, putting upward pressure on freight prices, right? So the the probably the shipping markets absorb a lot of the price increases. This is, you know, the demand for tankers goes up, but the demand for oil has not necessarily changed. It's just the system and the cost involved have become a bit more. So maybe there's a bit more involved in that. Um, but whether that really follows through into the futures market or whether it gets you know absorbed through some of the the arbitrages and the, the freight elements um, remains to be seen I think perfect the final uh, major topic I wanted to discuss was the old the almighty US dollar I guess maybe that's the wrong phrase but um, obviously major commodities are priced in USD and they continue to be at least uh, for the foreseeable future um, why, where is the DXY, which I think is produced by the Fed, flawed in terms of looking at changes in a nation-weighted dollar versus changes in commodity prices? Can you explain what you've done there and why you think it's significant? I wouldn't say it's it's you know completely flawed, or, but for the relevance for commodity traders, it's just not very high. You know the DXY is you know fifty, I think fifty two or fifty three percent euro. Then you have yen and Swiss franc is in there, and some of the Scandinavian currencies. I mean, it's a very old index, and it doesn't really reflect um, the importance of commodity importing countries at all. You know, mo- the biggest commodity importers are actually missing mostly from that list. You know, ex Japan. So, so what's a know, big importer? Korea. Perhaps Japan, Korea, India, China—you know—a lot of the incremental uh, commodity demand is coming from Asia, and so this index doesn't really capture any of that whatsoever, really. So what I wanted to kind of do is 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 kind of create a, an index that was reflective of the major commodity importers, and you know, as we spoke about the. Um, elasticity kind of affects, you know, demand earlier. It also varies by nation, you know, especially nations that you know import a lot more commodities in dollarized terms than they export. So those countries uh, in my index have a much higher weight than say big commodity exporters such as Australia. But you need to have all those kind of countries in there to understand the the actual impact of the dollar changes on the currencies of those countries that are importing the most commodities and not transforming them again and then exporting them. 
So there's a kind of dual effect there of really understanding where the sensitivity should be and how it should be weighted and accounted for. So I think that's where you get the demand response. And some countries are uh, a lot more sensitive to pricing. And I think what I found when I was looking at the dollar is it's really more about the speed of change. Because when you're seeing quick moves uh, in the dollar against these countries, that's you see more of a pause. And when you're looking, you know, um, even if you're looking at, you know, commercial kind of data on this, um, in strong dollar upswings, your, let's say that your commercial long element of your commodity markets tends to slow down. So you, the buying slows when it's moving quickly. Once you the volatility comes down and you reach a level, the level is less important because people adjust, right? It happens slowly, but they adjust to a new normal and a new level, and that's the kind of basis of business. But when things move quickly, especially on the upside, so that things are getting more expensive, there is a demand response where buying slows down and it's kind of a wait and see and wait to see if it comes back down or wait to see what the new normal is. This is sort of embedded in the bigger discussion that goes on all the time about how the inf- volatility of inflation broadly is more dangerous to the global economy than just the level, even if the level were 8%, 10%, if it just stuck there. Exactly. I think we, especially when we're, you know, when we're talking about kind of macro variables, there always is an adjustment, but it's more the volatility and short-term moves that tend to put the brakes on things because people can't make good forward assessments. Well, the Fed apparently uses uh, oil price expectations, or, or actually oil prices and inflation expectations as inputs to its, uh, at least informal inputs to its policy, policy decision-making. Is that something that you have looked at that you find relevant in your own work as well, looking at um, expectations rather than just price action? Or It depends how you want to measure expectations, because if you're using commodity futures curves to do that, that's a very silly way to do things because you know commodities are spot assets that price on the spot. So if you've got a very backward-aided futures market, and I have seen this mistake made over and over again, saying because the futures, the price in the future is lower, that's not the expectation of the price. You know, it's not a bond curve, right? Where the you know the the forward kind of bond futures represent forward pricing expectations. Commodities are, are not like that at all. It's the spot that really right, matters. It's a storable commodity and yeah. Exactly. Right, so understood. you know, thinking about it in, in those kind of senses, it doesn't really make sense. Now, you know, commodities are though a risk asset where inflation is hedged on. I mean, when you look at the best inflation hedges, that you can get. I mean, uh, CTAs are a part of that, but also energy and industrial metals are very strong inflation hedges as well. Um, so you you see, you know, uh, the impact when inflation expectations are rising, positions built on <laughs> forward inflation expectations increase in the market, and it gets a lot more, let's say, price sensitive to moves. I mean, they are intertwined, obviously, because higher oil prices does increase forward expectations of inflation. But again, it's the rate of change that matters for that, not the other way around. So this mythical academic quantity called convenience yield contains more information about hedging activity than it does about real expectations for price action? I think you could argue that, yeah. 
And again, I think you just have to understand the dynamics of each individual market. Not all futures curves are equal. I think we've covered the three major things. I was hoping that you could maybe spend a minute or two telling us about your current business, what sort of clients you have, and what your outlook is or your prospects, your strategic vision might be, just to string together a bunch of business words uh, for the future for the business. Sure. I mean, you know, we predominantly focus on a lot of the things I've discussed today, and it's it's solving that puzzle uh, between you know, what is actually pricing at any given time and who the marginal buyer and seller uh, need to be in any given kind of moment to assess actually what the forward price drivers are and who, as in a group of participants, it will be. by Understanding, let's say, the incentives and constraints of each of the major participants, we try to formulate the path of least resistance on a short-term basis. So our research you know, our weekly kind of research tends to be highlighting where the market sits today and over the next one to two, three weeks, given those participant constraints where we expect it to go. And it's trying to make sense of a lot of that noise, um, you know, and most of our clients are uh, fundamental traders, you know, sitting in major trading houses or hedge funds where this is a bit of a, let's say, a blind spot for them because they're mostly focused on actually understanding the fundamental side of their markets. And then we also produce, as, as you've seen, some more long-form long deep dive research. You know, that dollar piece I wrote last summer when, you know, for all of Q3, for crude, fundamentals were not pricing. And, you know, we had a very macro-driven environment in Q3 last year, and the dollar was the key element of that because it was the fastest moving and most prominent kind of piece of that puzzle. So, helping kind of traders explain and understand and then measure the impact of that on commodities when you have major themes popping up is something that we try to stay on top of and, and kind of contribute to. Perfect. Do you provide advice on in the options markets as well for the various assets you trade? Or you Absolutely. And I think the options market is probably going to become a much bigger market um, going forward, especially, you know, we, we've seen a, a trend over the last several years of of a lot more commodity traders now sitting in, um, let's say, hedge funds and you know pod funds, where they have a lot stricter, let's say, risk controls than they might have been used to in the trading houses, because you know trading houses understand uh, commodity volatility very well and understand that you have to warehouse risk to make money in this market. Whereas in the traditional hedge fund world, having very tight drawdowns and limits and stops, uh, putting on positions. It means that options will become kind of the weapon of choice for a lot of the industry. And, and we saw that very clearly last year, where we had absolutely enormous positions in the options market, uh, especially in crude, but a lack of people trading futures. And obviously, you need the futures market to move to put those options positions in the money. And we just had a disconnect. So everyone was sitting waiting on their options, but no one was buying the futures to actually make that happen for them. I think we're going to get a few more contradictions like that and staying on top of where these flows and positions are sitting, whether it's in futures or options, um, will be really key kind of going forward to understand where those constraints are. Do you have, speaking of options, do you have sort of a vibe on what the natural skew should be for vari the various markets that you talk about? So you mentioned oil should have a coal skew because there's a greater risk of 
some external shock driving prices upward rapidly. Do you have a view on other markets like nat gas or um, things like that? Is that stuff that you you look at or you include? Yeah, because I'm not really, I don't look at the world as from an options trader. I look at how does the options market influence the futures market, which is where the price gets determined. So I think skew is less important than positioning and flows uh, for kind of looking more for futures market impact. I think skew is more important, you know, potentially coming from potentially your background with a volatility view. I see. But uh, understood. But if if people are using options more and more based on their constrained risk profiles, clearly there will be distortions that are formed based on what people have to do to stay below the limits. I, I think that's absolutely right. But if you think about um, who some of the major participants are in options markets, commodities, Directional traders probably don't care as much about volatility. They're more price takers here, right? Um, producers, again, don't care about the volatility measurement. They get a price, and whether that's acceptable or not, they're going to execute it. So for volatility traders, probably in commodity, there's going to be a rich hunting ground as more, let's say, price insensitive or flows move towards that market. Got it. Okay, great. I am tapped out. If you'd like to say anything in conclusion, be my guest. It's uh, great to have someone like you on. So, uh, Yeah, well, thank you very much. And uh, if any of your listeners want to know more about our company, they can visit our website at uh, itsnotascience.com and, and find out more there. You're per- perhaps the most scientific person who has the disclaimer with INAS stuck on your uh, logo. So congratulations for that. I, I respect that. Thank you very that. much. Um, <laughs> And with that, I hand it back to Niels. Thank you so much, Harry and Nikki, for a very insightful conversation into what really drives commodity markets from a macro and capital flows perspective. There were a lot of information to digest, but of course, it was fascinating to learn what the real market drivers of the energy markets are, and in particular during periods like covid Of course, the influence of commercial participants and speculators like CTAs is very useful to understand, especially during which period one group is more dominant compared to the other, and also because of Nikki's view that many commodity market participants miss the impact of financial flows within commodity markets. Also, the recent activity by ETFs in the net gas market was quite interesting to learn about as well as the difference between how CTAs and risk parity funds react in these markets was super useful to understand. And finally, the section about the challenges within the DXY construction, as it lacks exposure to the biggest commodity importers, was uh, quite unique in my view. As I'm sure you can tell, we think energy and commodity markets in general are super important and critical to understand, and we will do our best to continue to bring you more great content in this area of finance. Make sure you go and follow Nikki's and Harry's work, because as you can tell from today's conversation, there are many exciting facets to learn from these people who have been in the trenches for many years, and we really look forward to exploring many more of them as our series continue. From Harry and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. 
If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.